It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. It's crunch time for Congress this week as Democrats continue negotiation on their $3.5 trillion human infrastructure spending plan. A portion of that plan was dealt a significant blow this weekend after the Senate parliamentarian ruled that a pathway to citizenship on immigration could not be included in the reconciliation package. Meantime, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas visited Del Rio, Texas on Monday, a city in which some 15,000 plus migrants have illegally crossed the border there into the United States and are setting up a camp city under a bridge in that area. Fox News correspondent Bill Malugin has been on the scene and in the air over Del Rio in the last week, calling it a crisis in every way, shape or form after talking to Customs and Border Patrol. For this and more, we'll bring in our panel this week, Republican strategist, former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown, Colin Reed, USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, and co-founder of The Dispatch and host of The Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg. Well, we've got a lot of things happening. Uh, Susan, up on Capitol Hill, this negotiation for Democrats really seems to be kind of splitting. It seems that the moderates really want to push the bipartisan plan to have a vote on the $1.2 trillion plan that's kind of in the House. But progressives really want the whole enchilada. They want the $3.5 trillion and the $1.2. Right. So somebody, something's going to have to give. Uh, and if nothing gives, it's conceivable that Democrats get nothing through the Congress. This is the core of President Biden's domestic agenda. I think that's why There's a general assumption that Democrats will work out some kind of compromise. But I've got to say, this is not that has not happened yet. And you really need a couple rabbits to be pulled out of hats for this to move forward in the way Democrats are hoping it will. Yeah, Jonah, it seems like the administration wants to have it always. Um, The president has said he wants to have both packages and has pushed both. Um, But is not really fighting to have a vote on the first bipartisan piece of legislation uh, like the moderate Democrats on the Hill are doing. Yeah, it, it feels very much like um, he's made uh, either a tactical blunder or a strategic decision to outsource a lot of these maneuverings to Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi has some theory about some rabbit she might have up her sleeve about being able to pull off both of these things as a legacy for her speakership, because she has to be at least thinking that there's a non-trivial chance that she won't be speaker come the next election. And I don't think it's a, it's, it, it, it's a wise choice. It reminds me a little bit of how 
the Obama administration farmed out a lot of the work to um, the Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate at the beginning of his administration. The key difference being is they had a they had big majorities to work with back then. Right now, with a laser with a razor thin margin, what was it, four seats in the House and, and literally 50 50 in the Senate, um, you just can't have you know your cake and eat it, too, on something this big. And I've, I've never really understood the threat that if you don't vote for our three point five trillion trillion, we won't let you vote for your one point five trillion as a um, particularly intimidating threat. Yeah. Um, but it's it, it still seems to be that the progressives believe in it. Right. Colin, th- that is the key thing. It is such a tight majority hold on Democrats. I mean, the, it's just the, so thin. They can't lose that many votes. And while Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Senate take a lot of the political heat from progressives, there are other moderates who are not comfortable with this scenario. So there's going to be some push and pull here. Yeah, and you saw huge elements of the $3.5 trillion bill uh, get defeated at the hands of the Democratic-controlled House last week. So it's not as though this thing is resoundingly popular with the American public. Uh, Joe Biden can't even sell it to his own party. Uh, Republicans like me are always watching Democrats like Kristen Sinema or Joe Manchin to to see if they'll talk the talk, but then end up uh, not walking the walk when it comes to stopping these things. But so far, those two have have stood uh, pretty firm. And, And this goes back, Brett, to, in my opinion, a tactical error made earlier in the summer uh, when President Biden and Speaker Pelosi insisted on coupling the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that had wide bipartisan support. It passed the Senate by something like 19 votes. It included a lot of Republican support, which is really, really uncommon these days, and packaging it together with the $3.5 trillion bill, which had no chance of ever passing, uh, no matter how you slice or dice it. I mean, Barack Obama in his prime in 2009 with a supermajority in the, in the Senate and uh, a huge majority in the House could have a hard time passing this thing, let alone Joe Biden, who amidst all the problems he's had lately, his political capital continues to erode by the day, uh, especially after the Friday afternoon he had. And as his political capital, his political numbers, his approval rating comes down, it becomes harder and harder and harder for Democrats in battleground uh, districts and states to take tough votes that he needs to pass this thing because of the, the razor thin majorities. And as, yeah. Biden, as Biden's approval rating sinks, uh, so too to the chances of this bill passing. His you know, approval rating hasn't fallen that dramatically, though, Susan, as of yet. I mean, it has taken a bit of a hit in recent weeks, and we'll talk about Friday and the confluence of events in just a second. But I want to stay on Capitol Hill uh, for a moment, and that is to say, you know, Republicans potentially could salvage the bipartisan infrastructure bill with a Republican vote in support of it with moderate Democrats, and they could get it across the finish line. But that would then be seen as a victory for the Biden administration in bipartisan legislation. And in a political season heading to 2022, is that something Republicans are going to do? Yeah. When was the last time we saw that happen? I mean, we saw some of that happen uh, with the with some of the COVID legislation that was seen as a, a real emergency. But that's not a muscle that's gotten a lot of exercise yeah. on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, I think uh, here's what I think Democrats assume. Democrats assume Nancy Pelosi has delivered in the past, even when people said she couldn't. And so she'll deliver now. Uh, and, you know, you point to people point to the Affordable Care Act as an example of that. But as Colin pointed out, this is a tougher terrain. 
than she faced then. And so we'll we'll see. It is it is a legacy issue for her. You know, it's not only that she may well not be the speaker of the House uh, the next after the next congressional election. Entirely possible she won't be a member of Congress at that point. Uh, we think this is probably her last term. So the stakes are pretty high for her, and the stakes are even higher for Joe Biden at this point that his presidency has gotten kind of bruised. Yeah, bruised. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Friday, Jonah, was really quite something, uh, the confluence of events. You had some 15,000 migrants uh, going across the border in Del Rio, Texas, under this international bridge by the port of entry there. Wasn't covered a lot by anybody else but Fox um, for a while, and now now it is. But it's a it's a big problem, and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary is there uh, today. You had the announcement that the French were going to pull their ambassador out of Washington uh, in protest to this uh, sub deal that the U.S. had arranged with Great Britain and Australia. Behind the backs, it seems, of the French, uh, they seemed blindsided and hurt. And uh, it's kind of unique for a diplomatic move to pull your ambassador from allies. And then the announcement by the Pentagon that this drone strike that the president touted as a successful strike against ISIS-K as an example of his counterterrorism over the horizon strategy was, in fact, not ISIS-K, but an aid worker and seven children uh, and a couple of others uh, who were not tied to terrorism. All of that on Friday afternoon as he left for Rehoboth and, um, and the beach for the weekend. Well, I'd want to leave her row within the beach, too, <laughs> on a Friday like that. Um, yeah, it's and, you know, one of the things that bothers me a little bit about the, the coverage of, of last Friday and, and, and the Biden administration's problems in general, not that this is primarily a media story, but you often see the sort of passive voice that these are things that happened to Joe Biden on Friday, when, in fact, a lot of these things are directly the result of decisions that joe biden made now i think the australia deal is great it seems pretty clear that they could have massaged the french a little bit you mean um, as far as the substance of the deal yeah, the substance of the deal pressing I think is, china in that area the whole thing yeah and, and and a sort of anglophone alliance that is a little more nimble and doesn't have to work through the bureaucracy of the eu which the french you know have a sort of proprietary stake in makes a lot of sense on a lot of different levels and and australia is arguably you know, I mean, the British are our chief allies, but Australia's sent troops to fight in every conflict that we've ever been in. And yeah. so I think it's a good thing on the merits. But the way he handled it certainly is open to criticism. The drone strike, um, you know, we've had catastro catastrophic drone strikes in the past, but this was a choice he made and they bragged about it and they boasted about it. And similarly, at the border, the, you know, the, you know, some of this is not his fault. People are coming here for all sorts of reasons, but some of it is a direct response to the, the, the messaging that the Biden campaign put out. And so now they're backtracking. They're actually you know, appealing this Rule 42 that the Trump administration invoked to have the authority to stop asylum seekers to fight the pandemic. They're now embracing the Trump policy because they have no other option. Politically, they have to do something to, to staunch the flow of, of migrants at the border. And um, this isn't, these aren't just, you know, this isn't Charlie Brown where bad things happen to Joe Biden. These are 
to significant degrees, fruits of the policy decisions that he and his administration has made and falling back on the same tired talking points doesn't really work. I mean, this afternoon, Jen Psaki tried to rebut questions about the uh, killing what was it, seven kids in Afghanistan by, by once again invoking Joe Biden's experience with tragic personal loss. You know, lots of people have tragic personal loss. That doesn't mitigate what the Biden administration did touting this over the horizon capability to fight terrorism amidst this shambolic withdrawal. These are things that he deserves a great deal of accountability for. Yeah. And listen, there are many drone strikes that have gone astray over the years from the Bush, Obama, Trump administrations. Um, there are very few, and I'm trying to think of specifics, where a drone strike was specifically mentioned by a president as a successful piece of evidence of a counterterrorism strategy uh, that turned out to be exactly opposite and an aid worker and seven kids. Colin, uh, this is the reason. I mean, yes, he's experienced loss, but he's never experienced loss at the result of an American drone launching a Hellfire missile at a car. No, and the only uh, if there is an upside, which there isn't, but politically speaking, the only thing that the Biden uh, the Biden administration had that, that helped them on Friday was uh, all three bad pieces of news came in a, in a span of few hour, a few hours on a Friday afternoon. It was almost too much to keep up with. I mean, we haven't even talked about the the COVID uh, the COVID news out of the Pfizer or, or the, the the French submarines and, and that situation too much. But the, the the irony about both the submarine situation with France and then what's happening in Afghanistan is Joe Biden was supposed to be the foreign policy president. Uh, he liked to talk about America being back. And that was his slogan, and it was uh, it was for so long it was seen as just a departure uh, from Donald Trump and and the uh, the the turbulence of his presidency. But now, as Joe Biden heads into his United Nations speech tomorrow, uh, this should be his moment to shine. Uh, him on the stage with a bunch of international diplomats, and instead, there's a lot of uh, anger right now. I mean, if you look at some of these statements, Brett, coming out from the French Foreign Minister, you could close your eyes and think they were uh, press releases from the RNC. Uh, the stab in the back was the exact term. And then he gave him, the, of course, the, the greatest of all sins. He compared him to, said that his behavior was worse than Donald Trump's. Uh, it was brutal, unilateral, unpredictable. I mean, these are harsh, harsh, harsh assessments coming from literally America's oldest ally, France, which helped us uh, win our independence uh, in the American Revolution. I, it is funny to hear Republicans really touting the French after all the years of, uh, you know, French fries. And we're going to change it to American fries during the Iraq war. It's it's freedom fries, freedom fries. What we're right. waiting for is to see if the French change the name of American cheese. Yeah, <laughs> right. That will be something. Susan, um, just because Colin mentioned the COVID stuff, the the booster shots and kind of the mixed messaging on that. And, and then the FDA advisory board saying, Listen, we are not for booster shots across the board, people 65 and older or immunocompromised. Um, it, it's, it's a little murky as far as, you know, following the science if we go down this road and it's adding to the, the issues for the administration. Yeah, that's right. Just to, before we leave the Freedom Prize yeah. issue, I would say yeah. the French would not want to claim American cheese as their own, so they're probably happy to have it <laughs> right. labeled American Fair. cheese. Fair. But I would say that of all these problems and challenges that we say, see President Biden facing, 
COVID is the most serious one. He really wasn't elected to be a foreign policy president. He was elected to get control of the pandemic. Uh, that was the biggest problem Trump had in his reelection battle. That was the biggest promise that Joe Biden made. And so, of course, some progress has been made, and we're glad to see the move, movement toward a, a safe and effective vaccine for children. But the process of convincing the vaccine reluctant to get shots has been, I think, much more difficult than the Biden people thought. And it hasn't been helped by mixed messages that we've seen from the from the White House in general, from the president, even from uh, the CDC on what's safe to do when people can expect to get uh, booster shots, who's going to be eligible. These are all things that kind of undermine confidence that this administration really knows what it's doing when it comes to COVID. Well, the other thing, Joan, is is watching these local officials and many of them Democratic mayors or governors kind of deal with this. And, you know, in their own social sphere, the mayor of San Francisco out and about, you know, partying. And she said she just felt the mood. So she got up and danced without her mask. And and that was okay. There shouldn't be fun police. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great missed opportunities for the democratic party was by making Rahm Emanuel ambassador to Japan. They missed the opportunity. They should have made him the head of the DNC because Rahm Emanuel at least understood that how politics actually works, you know? And so he would put conservative Democrat when he ran the triple D triple C, he would put conservative Democrats in races where only a conservative Democrat could win rather than try to find some progressive who would lose by 20 points. And similarly, he would go around and say, people, are you out of your minds? You can't do this kind of thing. Did you learn anything from the French laundry? The mayor's explanation is so weird. It it would be a perfectly fine explanation as part of an apology. Right. You say, look, I messed up. I made a mistake. And in the spirit of the moment, I got up and danced. And I know this violates the policies that I've helped enforce and all that. But instead, she thinks it's an excuse to to dodge the policies that she's imposing on other people, particularly, you know, people with kids and the the impact that COVID is taking, I think, politically and psychologically among parents um, who are, you know, the backbone of any winning majority are basically middle class parents in suburbia who send their kids to public schools and whatnot. Uh, the trauma that they've gone through for like 18 months is real. And I think it's going to have a long tail in how our politics works. The financial crisis in 2008 had a very long tail in terms of igniting a lot of populism. This could ignite similar disruptions to conventional politics for a long time to come. And yet a lot of politicians don't feel like they should change their own personal behavior and how they lead to adjust for it. And I think it's going to have really bad consequences for the country. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, Gavin Newsom obviously got over this recall with not a not a problem in California. Uh, But if you look deep into those numbers, there are some concerning things for Newsom and the Democratic Party. Um, And Colin, that to Jonah's point, that whiplash of kind of covid backlash uh, could linger for quite some time. Yeah, the, the real story was not that Gavin Newsom won in California. It's the fact that he even had to try or be, break a sweat doing it. I mean, in a state like California, uh, a Republican should never have a chance, especially in this political climate. 
But look, the, the, the Republican Party went through its own existential uh, battle with its, itself over the last few years and, and, and goes on today with uh, the debate over who's going to lead the future of the party uh, and, and, uh, and everything that, that comes with that in 2024. Uh, the Democratic Party was managed to hold together during a, what could have been a really divisive primary process in 2020 because they were united by a single fact, and that was their desire to get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, other than, And they were able to rally sufficiently behind Joe Biden. But those populists, the populist waves that Jonah was talking about that are coursing through the veins of the Republican Party, they're on the Democratic Party as well. And that's why Joe Biden, I think, is having such a hard time getting legislation passed because he does have to – he's learning that the uh, governing is a lot harder than campaigning, especially when you're, you're overseeing such a, a divergent uh, opinion of voices. And you've got to keep – you've got to find something that basically Joe Manchin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, can agree on. And that's really difficult, especially when, you know, your approval rating is 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 taking a hit and you've got the midterms around the corner and pretty soon everyone's going to retreat to their, their partisan corner. So the window for legislating is closing uh, faster than anyone can possibly believe. Yeah. Susan, last word. I mean, it, you can't really pitch yourself on a campaign trail as being the negotiator, the bipartisan guy, the guy who works with both sides and finds a middle ground and then try to be FDR in your legislation. Can you? No. Uh, and of course, one thing the White House is well aware of is that the clock is ticking. They do not have till the end of this Congress to get things done. They have until early next year to get things done before we are completely swamped by the politics of the midterm. Yeah, you're right. Panel, thanks. Here's a bit of American history. On September 20th, 2001, Former President George W. Bush declared a war on terror. The global military campaign against terrorism was first declared in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and then addressed to Congress. President Bush says, quote, our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped and defeated. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Colin and Susan and Jonah, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.